episode today, we have a very special and very unique guest. I realize that all of our guests are special, but this conversation was one that I was particularly excited about. Um, It combines a place that I love, which is Scotland, as well as an animal that I have always been interested in, the ever-mysterious unicorn. And so today on the show, we have invited Professor Donna Hadel. She is a director of the Institute for Northern Studies at the University of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland. And so again, we're going into unicorns. We're going to be talking about some mythical animals and you know, exploring why Scotland in particular has been such an incredible place for storytelling about mythical beasts. Donna, it's great to connect with you. And we're so excited to have you here on Furfluencers today. I guess to get started, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and you know where you're calling in from? Well, thank you very much for asking me to come along today. Um, my name is Donna Heddle. I am the uh, director of the Institute for Northern Studies at the University of the Highlands and Islands in Scotland. And I'm actually speaking to you today from the Orkney Islands, which are off the north of Scotland. We're 56 Uh, North, for those of you interested in animals, the place in Manitoba where the polar bears come in and rake in the bins in the wintertime is six degrees further south than I am now. Oh my goodness, I didn't realise that. Mm -hmm. So I'm very far north in a a very old place full of lots of magical creatures. That's incredible. And so the Orkney Islands, they are, if I have it correctly, it's northeast coast off of Scotland, not as far as Shetland, but pretty far off the coast. That's correct, yeah. That's amazing. And what was your journey like you know, to your current you know, position as a, a faculty member? Well, actually, I started off uh, doing medicine and then had to come home and run the family business. And then um, was, my mother died, so it's rather sad. And I changed direction at that point. And I married an Arcadian, that's somebody from the Orkney Islands. And uh, he was actually offered a job. Um, he's, a, he's an uh, optical physicist and he was offered a job at the observatory in Hawaii, but he didn't seem to fancy that. He said the only islands he wanted to come to was Orkney. And there was the new University of the Highlands and Islands, which was starting then 23 years ago when I came back here. Um, so I applied for a position there to develop a, an undergraduate programme in culture and heritage. And almost immediately I could see the need for an Institute for Northern Studies to explore the heritage of that Norse part of Scotland, um, which people sometimes forget about. When they think about Scotland, they think about Tartan and the Loch Ness Monster and Bonnie Lassies and things like that. But actually the, the Norse tradition is, is very, very strong. So that's how I found myself here. That's incredible. And, you know, I read through a little bit of, um, you know, your background, some of the things that that you've written about, that you've spoken about. And it to me, it just sounds like that part of Scotland has such an incredibly rich culture because it's sort of at this, I, I guess, melting point, melting pot for you have Nordic influences, you have sort of the, the Gaelic, like Irish influence. What is that northern culture, you know, going back in time? Well, the interesting thing about Scotland is that most people think about Scotland in terms of just one part of our culture, which is the Gaelic part. But actually, we're a mixture of four different indigenous groups. And one of those is Norse. And the Norse um, tradition actually has had a great effect on Scotland, but it's not so well known. Because the height of the Norse power was before really Scotland became a kingdom as we know it today. 
So, uh, you know, the great, the mighty Viking Jarls and so on, their time was past by the time Robert the Bruce and William Wallace and the other Scottish heroes familiar perhaps to your audience uh, came along. So, but, you know, the names that we have in Scotland, the way we build our boats, our legal system, law is a Norse word after all, all of these things, the, the, the kind of feisty community orientated spirit that we have in Scotland, I would argue and have argued in print um, that this is actually a Norse influenced uh, state of affairs. But uh, we're very much a mixture. I mean, it's no accident that in Scotland we write books like Jekyll and Hyde, for example, because we're a mixture of all these different things. My mother is a Norse Valkyrie and my father uh, was a Gael. So I'm a mixture of the two, of those two groups. I love that description of the, the feisty communities. That <laughs> paints a very strong image. And it's, it was interesting for me. So I spent my summer, um, I think I was in Scotland for about two weeks, and so we were on you know, the western side, not far from Oban, then you know, Glencoe, and then you know, we drove up north to Tongue. And I remember once we were in that very northern part, even the names of places seemed to change a bit, the names of roads and the towns. And I, the architecture, too, I could feel that Norse influence. And it was just so magical and interesting to me, especially as an outsider. Well, that's very well noticed on your part then, because actually the, name, the place names do change a great deal. But then there is a substrate underneath where the place names are actually the same, but spelt differently. Uh, like in the Western Isles, nearly all of the place names in the Western Isles are actually Norse, but they're spelt in a different way. For example, the, the place Wick in the north of Scotland is Vic from the Norse Bay. But any place in the Western side of things, it's got A-I-G at the end, Ick, that's the same word. So we have wonderful oh, awesome. Celtic names like Tarskovic, which sounds very romantic, but it means Cod Bay, it's Tarskovic. So uh, you see what I mean about it all being buried together? You know, it's not the first thing that people think of, but it's absolutely and totally there the whole time. Right. And so I, you know, another part of my trip to Scotland that was particularly exciting for us was you know, the wildlife. You know, of course, you've got all sorts of different bird life. You've seen the deer. I know the deer have sort of a mixed relationship <laughs> with the highlands. <laughs> I was excited to see them. And we did this wonderful um, tour with a conservationist. And he said, yeah, you might like the deer, but, but we don't like them as much right now. And in talking to him, you know, it came up that, especially it seemed in the north, there was this history of sort of mythological creatures, you know, animals that had appeared throughout history in Scottish or Norse literature, poetry, and even carvings. I was wondering if you could speak to that at all. Well, it's an interesting thing. We find these symbols. The thing about the Pictish symbols, now the Pictish people were a people who we know had a very sophisticated society, but in many ways, Julia, it's like they're, they're looking at us through a pane of glass because we don't understand their language. We can't understand very often what it is that they're trying to tell us. But what we do understand is the carvings that they left. And they very often have mythological beasts. Um, they also have beasts which may represent characteristics of a king as well. And of course, the, the, the oldest symbol of Scotland was the blue boar, the Celtic blue boar of Scotland, which is one of the reasons, folks, why pork isn't that popular a meat in Scotland. Because traditionally it was sacred. I didn't realize that. That's so funny. I, I, you know, I actually noticed at restaurants that there was very little pork, and I didn't know if it had to do with farming or just, you know, was it that the land was not particularly hospitable to hogs? But so you're saying that these wild pigs actually had a sacred role in those early societies. Indeed, and uh, they would they would be the druids' pigs, if you like, and they would um, eat the acorns in the sacred groves 
and things like that. So therefore, they were out of bounds and they were actually totem animals, like from the, what was there before the clans. For example, some people think that Orkney is Porkney. I am not one of them. <laughs> but, um, you know, it is a view, for example. So it's interesting how... You know, we see these. We see depictions of, of of these pigs and things like that. We see depictions of beasts here in Maesthal, um, which is a Neolithic tomb, which was broken into by Viking raiders who left graffiti, very much the Kilroy was here type graffiti at the time, which is now hallowed by time itself and part of the whole story there. But there's what's called the Maesthal dragon in there. It was a beautiful carving, which you can find on jewellery and so on, um, which we do so well in Orkney. Um, and that, again, is a, a, a mythical beast there as well. We also have the great Mester Stoorworm, which is a gigantic sea creature. And the story of the vanquishing of the Stoorworm is really the origin myth of the Norse lands. So I'm just going to tell you very briefly about that, Julia. Yes, because please. It's a great story. And great. Um, it tells you what people thought these lands were all about. So the story is this, that there was this huge Mester Stewerworm, big serpent in the bay, right outside my window here in Kirkwell. And uh, it, it could not be vanquished and it had to be fed maid, maidens every day. I don't, I'm not entirely sure why maidens have to get the gig every time, but there it is. It's always a maiden. It's never somebody's granny or an old man or anything. It's always a maiden. So um, eventually, of course, the supply of maidens becomes rather short. And so various heroes step forward to deal with the, st the stoorworm, but they can't deal with them. And of course, uh, a, a lad of perts, as we say in Scotland, somebody of the people who's got a bit of wit about him uh, comes forward and he says he will vanquish the, st the stoorworm. And what happens? They fight for three days and eventually he realises the only way to vanquish it is to jump down its throat and set fire to its liver. Obviously. So that's what he does. And in its throes, the stoorworm breaks into pieces and part of it becomes Orkney, part becomes Shetland, part becomes the Faroe Islands and part, be part becomes Iceland. And the burning liver is the volcano Hecla on Iceland. And that just is a way of connecting all of these colonies, these Norse colonies together in a story, a violent story, because the Norse stories are always violent. It's not like the wonderful Navajo stories where the night sky is a blanket with holes in it, which I thought was the most delightful thing I'd ever heard. Uh, so it's a, it, it says, tells you something about the people and what they're connected to. And that is indeed a mythic beast of enormous oh my size. Gosh. I hadn't heard that story while I was there. I love that. I actually, I find that very charming. You violets uh, <laughs> <aside>. <laughs> That's, I guess it's true because those islands, they, they really do share, there's cultural overlap that stretches from Scotland to Iceland, something that I guess many people would not necessarily think at face value because they're thinking of the Scotland of the Tartans and Nessie mm -hmm. and golf and whiskey and all of that. But there's actually, again, like this very strong Northern culture that, you know, you could see those influences throughout, throughout the country. I'm curious, was there you know, in your mind, a golden period for mythological stories featuring animals in Scotland's history? Like, is there a point where you could say, you know, the the carvings popped up or the oral history seemed to begin around here and then it started to fade out, you know, around this point in time? Uh, I don't think so. I think in, in Scotland, we've always had this understanding there are other dimensions and we live with them. And at certain times of the year, the veil between the two dimensions becomes thinner. Uh, such as at Halloween or Samhain, 
as we would say. Um, and so we're, we're well aware that the place is infested with um, mythical and supernatural creatures. And we have to be very careful. In some cases, we have to make sure we leave a bread and milk out for the brownie or the hogboon who looks after the house, for example. And that actually goes straight back to the Norse tradition of somebody having two souls. One soul leaves your body at the time of death and one soul hangs about. Um, and so most Norse farms are actually, they would have their founder buried on them to protect the farm. The farm that my husband's family came from, which they had for over a thousand years, was originally Thorwaldis Howe, which is Thorwald's mound, and then it becomes Horaldsey then, uh, you know, as it de deteriorates through time. But the idea was that, that this, this hogboon or haugerbwanda, um, a good man of the mound, was somebody like a brownie or, you know, who looked after the house or the farm and you looked after it. So, and even to this day, there's a house in the north of uh, Orkney where the people who bought it did not look after their hogboon and ill fate befell them all. And so it's a very difficult house to sell now. <laughs> oh my goodness. So all of this could have been prevented by leaving some bread and milk outside is what that you're is saying. That's correct. Yes. <laughs> That's lovely. Are there any other sort of similar stories, creatures that to this day, you know, people still celebrate in Scotland or you know, they still have special traditions around those animals or creatures? Well, there's, there's all sorts of things there. You know, the Halloween, for example, and I'm afraid um, Halloween isn't really about witches or anything like that. It certainly wasn't in Scotland. The witches ride on the um, 30th of April, in fact, in Walpurgisnacht. They do not ride at Halloween. Thank you very much. Um, but at, at Halloween, you see, we it's the time when the, the, the division between the two dimensions is thin and creatures can come through and you can meet the creatures. You dress up as the creatures. We In Scotland, we, do, we did something called guising, i.e. I, being the disguised ones. Um, dressed up and it might be as creatures or whatever um, and it was the beginning of the year you see so there's lots of wonderful rituals uh, about young women trying to find out who their future husbands will be at sowing because it's the beginning of the year the harvest is in you see so it's a good time to do that and you see sometimes creatures come into that the direction a crow might travel um, black cats are not you know, they, they tend to symbolise Freya, the goddess, the elemental goddess of love in the Norse tradition. That's not the marriage. She's not the marrying kind, Julia. OK, she's not interested in any of that at all. Okay. <laughs> I think somebody might have said that about me at one point in time as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, there's a lot to be said for marriage. I've been married nearly 29 years and it's been fine. But... Um, Yes, so there, there is all these awarenesses. There's also things like what we, we have a great tradition, which might be of interest to you actually come to think about it. And these are um, uh, philias or vardens. And they're a bit, I don't know if you've read Philip Pullman's his Dark Materials, but the, the characters in there have some kind of animal spirit that travels with them that symbolizes something about their personality. And that's the, the varden in Norse tradition. It's an animal spirit. It was like your spirit creature, maybe in the uh, Native American tradition, for example, that kind of thing. But it's just something that's separate to you. That, and that's, that's what Philip Pullman channels uh, in his books, I suspect, more from the Native American tradition, perhaps, than Orkney. <laughs> but, uh, nonetheless, there it is. So, yeah, there's always this awareness of that dimension of things, the, the importance of animals. And animals are very important in Scotland. They don't necessarily have to be real animals to be incredibly important because, you know, uh, perhaps, you, I'm sure you know this already, but our national animal is the unicorn, which is, uh, we share with Wales the distinction of being the only two countries in the world with mythical animals, 
Right, because Wales is the dragon and the Scotland dragon. is the unicorn. That's correct. That's correct. Yes. Although we have we have evidence for people writing about unicorns as much as three thousand years ago, uh, in the works of um, Sitius, who was the physician of Artaxerxes, speaking about Artaxerxes II of Persia, um, and he died about three fifty eight BC, and he talks about unicorns, and of course unicorns are mentioned in the Bible and indeed the Quran as well. So there's always been an awareness of this of this mythic creature. But people people often say to me, why does Scotland have an animal? <laughs> that isn't real. Well, it's real. Right. Thank you very much. It's real. <laughs> well, it's real in the sense that it, it it encapsulates a higher sense of being in many ways. Now, you might want to ask me what, why did Scotland adopt this? When did Scotland adopt this? And the reason for this is we had a king called James I, not to be confused with the James I and VI, who um, was uh, the subject of the gunpowder plot and so on and inherited the whole to all the kingdoms from Elizabeth I, for example. I'll come back to her because she was very keen on unicorns. Um, but our James I in the uh, 15th century, he was actually captured by the English when he was a, a young boy. His father had sent him to France to save him from the English, but no, he was captured and he spent 14 years in the Tower of London. And eventually he was allowed to go home because the despot that was his uncle who'd ruled had died. So they, they were keen to have him back then, they paid the ransom. Meanwhile, he had spent a lot of his time writing a poem um, very much based on Boethius's De Consolatione, because everything in the Middle Ages can be encapsulated with the phrase, it'll all work out fine, right, because <laughs> God. Okay, and that's what everything's about. And he was writing this poem and he looked out the window and he saw this beautiful girl in the garden and it's the first piece of love poetry in Scots with his heart starting out of his breast at the sight of her. And he got to marry her and take her home. Uh, as his queen, and uh, they were very happy until, of course, a dreadful fate befell him, as befell all the Stuart kings, obviously, because that's the arrangement. Um, no Stuart king is, has inherited um, when they're uh, an adult. Um, I'm afraid I mean, Mary, Queen of Scots, was only six days old when she became, became queen. But anyway, the unicorn. Now, one of the things in, in medieval times, uh, one of the things that showed a king's power and status was a menagerie of exotic animals. Right, like a mix of peacocks, mm, I'm envisioning. Yeah, everything, and... yeah, anything exotic from far away. Okay. Right? And I, I could divert into a Norse story about a polar bear, but we'll leave it there. Just <laughs> yeah, it's a good story. But um, so everybody had these menageries. Um, James I was actually uh, imprisoned quite near the menagerie in the Tower of London. And around about this time, kings were adopting heraldic animals for example it's the porcupine in france it's the lion in england uh it's the wolf the pack animal in italy and so on and james adopted the unicorn and i think that the reason he adopted the unicorn is because it's the only animal that can defeat the lion right it has the power i mean lots of people think of unicorns now as being sort of cuddly things with glittery horns on cup right right <laughs> no, exactly. no, 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 they are ferocious creatures and uh, we have them in statues all over Scotland and they are, they are powerful, virile symbols of the male principle to the extent that they, they, they're anatomically accurate and when the Queen Elizabeth, uh, our, our late Queen, um, came to Scotland for the first time in 1952 as Queen, there was some concern about this. They were wondering if they should perhaps remove these offending 
uh, items from the statues, but they did not do that. So these are strong, powerful creatures. They represent the higher consciousness, but they are virile, strong, untamable creatures. Right? Oh, if that is in Scotland, I don't know what is. These are fighting hands. Right? Right? So. You know, they are untamable. I understand why he picked that. He had come out of captivity. He had overcome it, right? The beautiful unicorn, which represents intelligence, poetry, the higher spheres of life. It's extremely beautiful. And it can be captured by a woman, which, again, with the Stuart Kings was a bit of an issue, right? With lots of women in their lives, not necessarily their wives, tragically. But certainly, and they were also very fertile, which caused a lot of problems too, <laughs> dynastically. But, you know, I can see exactly why he picked that. And it was, it is untamable. Nothing can conquer the unicorn. and Nothing can conquer the Scots. They've because tried. that's the national motto of Scotland, isn't it? No man messes with me with impunity. Right. I probably butchered it, but okay, I got it. <laughs> yeah. Neville me and puni lakesit. There we go. Latin. <laughs> and that's it. Nobody, you know, mess it, gets away with messing with me. Indeed, yes. Indeed, some of the clan ones. The, the clan symbol is the wild cat, and it's touch not the cat but a glove. You can't touch the cat without a glove. I love that. Should be scratched. Oh yeah. Again, these are fighting hands, right? Um, so I, I, that's why I suspect that he chose it, and it, you know, it was incredibly popular at Stirling Castle, for example. If any of your listeners come over to Scotland for a holiday, you must be sure to go to Stirling Castle for all sorts of reasons. But one of them is the beautiful array of unicorn tapestries, which are there that depict the hunt of the unicorn, um, and it's you know the the, cap, the the hunting the unicorn, you know the medieval ladies and all the beautiful, and then the finally the, the maiden captures the unicorn, and then the the chaining of the unicorn, because you'll notice that in the arms of the United Kingdom, the unicorn is chained. Um, and the so arms it's the of, taming uh, of the unicorn, it, or the it hasn't really it has to be chained to keep it down. It, it has not been conquered, you see. It has to be chained. Wow. And in the arms of Scotland, the unicorn's on the side of power, which is the left. In the arms of England, the unicorn's on the right, which is not the side of power. Um, but uh, so the beautiful tapestries are there. And of course, it, uh, the unicorn can only be captured with its own ascent by a woman. Traditionally, it was a maiden. Um, and then in uh, Hildegard of Bingen, um, the great um, abbess and uh, musician said it should be a young woman. So no old maids need apply, it transpires, <laughs> that you would have to be young and fair to capture the unicorn. Because see, the power of the chastity and the innocence overcame the primeval instincts uh, of the unicorn. But the unicorn itself symbolizes chastity and purity. And it's very popular with little girls everywhere. I was going to say, growing up, my sister and I loved them. And I think our the first time, you know, you saw them in cartoons or on TV, but I think the first time we understood them in a cultural context, I believe it was at the Cloisters Museum here in New York City. We have this wonderful mm -hmm. sort of medieval museum in northern Manhattan. It, for a, you know, a minute, you'll feel like you're in Europe and it's quite refreshing. And, you know, inside they have those those unicorn tapestries, some of them. Mm -hmm. And I think it was I just remember seeing it for the first time and being struck by how this thing that I had seen in cartoons and didn't really have any historical context for was actually something that had passed through history for a very long time and was obviously as interesting to people hundreds of years ago as it was to me in that moment. Well, very true. I've seen those uh, uh, tapestries and things myself. I've been to that museum. 
Um, but the, the unicorn's more than that too, because because it was such a special animal, it was believed that its horn could cure various ailments from the plague and so on and so forth. But it's extremely costly, and uh, a pinch of unicorn horn or alicorn, as they called it, uh, would be would cost as much a house, perhaps. Now Queen Elizabeth the first, she paid ten thousand pounds. Uh, back in the in 16th century for a unicorn horn. She had several. Now, were they unicorn horns? Hmm, perhaps not. Um, they're more likely to be in a narwhal horn. Now, uh, that's that's a, a narwhal is the most extraordinary looking creature. It's basically, it looks like a whale with a unicorn horn on it. It's the most extraordinary thing. And the, the crown, uh, uh, or rather the throne of uh, Denmark is made of narwhal horn. It's oh, that's fascinating! I didn't know that. It's the most extraordinary thing, you know, because wow. of course they they had their their huge settlements in Greenland and Iceland and so on. Denmark, like so many little countries in the world, had massive colonies. If you think about Portugal, had Brazil, you know, that's one of the right. biggest countries in the world, you know. Um, but uh, so the narwhal horn was, um, and, you know, it was a very um, saleable item. So lots of people who made fortunes out of unicorn horns, but people really believed in them. Of course, Queen Elizabeth I was known as the Virgin Queen. Of course, uh, she was a professional virgin uh, and good luck to her with that, having seen what happened to her mother, who was, of course, Anne Boleyn, the second wife of Henry VIII and had her head chopped off. So I can quite see that you might not want to have a husband yourself <laughs> after that, right? But uh, you know, the whole notion of the Virgin Queen, she had these things on display. She drank from a cup made from a normal horn or unicorn horn as we, as we might want to see so it's not just scotland where it's it's been venerated but for us the, the primeval power and the energy um and uh, the links to poetry and the higher consciousness and so on as well as the healing properties symbolize a lot which we like to think is part of scotland do you ever hear claims of unicorn sightings in Scotland? Does that ever come up the way someone might say, oh, I think I saw the Loch Ness Monster? Are there no. any? No. So no. The, the unicorns have been left to themselves. Yes, yes, yes. It's definitely, we're tapping into a much more global phenomenon, I think, rather than having unicorns in herds. Or, of course, you don't get unicorns in herds. And of course, you don't get female unicorns. So that's a bit of an issue. But um, <laughs> you know, we, we tend to see, what we tend to see are large cats. People have sightings of large, like pumas or panther type cats or the Kellis cat, which is also a mythic beast, large cats. I mean, there's the wonderful stories about uh, uh, um, housewives putting out their washing and sort of t pushing the sheet aside and discover they're looking at a puma, which can't be a good moment at all um so but that is of course of course because lots of people in scotland as elsewhere bought large uh, cats as pets and then we had a law that was passed a few years ago saying you couldn't keep such large cats in captivity which you know entirely reasonable extremely cruel probably in many cases and they were just released there's supposed to be a tiger going about sutherland oh my gosh in the north of, in the north of scotland i haven't seen the said tiger uh, Julia, so I can't comment, but th that is the tale. Certainly, seen evidence and pictures of large cats. You know that you can you can see that they're large cats because they're going along the side of a railway line, something like that. So you can scale. So I know I wouldn't be at all surprised, quite frankly, um, if they That's were incredible. there. So. I guess there's enough for them to eat. You have plenty of deer, plenty. sheep, etc. Um, 
Wow. I drove through Sutherland and sadly did not see any tigers, but the next time we make that trip, I'll keep that in mind. Well, see, that's one of the reasons that people are very keen to reintroduce wolves and things like that to Scotland. That's very Mm. much part of the debate at the moment, because it would actually sort out the ecosystem. It would deal with the red deer overpopulation rather than having to cull them. It would deal with it in a natural way. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quite sure the red deer would have something to say about this, but nobody seems to have asked them. Um, their opinion but uh, it would be one way you know of bringing balance back because we did have lynx and wolves and so on as they do in Europe you know they have lynx wolves bears everything as you do of course in America. That was something that I was also wondering you know when we were hiking through different parts of the highlands you know apart from the deer and some of the small critters you know what other animals are there especially animals of prey and the feedback I generally got was there's not much, you know, humans seem to be at the top of the um, the food chain, obviously, you know, up north, but in terms of wolves, you know, I don't know if you have coyotes, bears, et cetera, just nope. not much. But uh, we have wildcats, Scottish wildcats, and you will never mistake that for a, a domesticated feline, I assure you. The glare on it is quite something. Uh, we have pine martens, uh, which are not particularly big, but quite uh, quite ferocious uh, predators. We have badgers, of course, and foxes. Um, in Orkney, we don't have any of those. Uh, we have a gap between birds of prey and small furry animals. We have lots of rabbits. And the Orkney vole, which is a very special vole, which looks like a hamster with a very puffed out little face. Oh, my goodness. It's, it's very cute. <laughs> But unfortunately, everything eats it. Oh. So, you know, all the predators, we have lots and lots of birds here and lots of cetaceans, of course. We're on the migratory paths for the whales, things like that past here. I mean, I've seen a humpbacked whale out there in the bay. And it's, oh, it's a great big whale, right? Oh, and it, it came right into the pier and it looked for all the world like a submarine next to the pier. That's oh, my what gosh. It like. Incredible. It was exhausted. It had come in from the storms. For a oh, I see. Right, right. Take a break. <laughs> yeah, and had gone out again. Mm. So it's not just mythic creatures that we have in abundance in Scotland. It's um, the kind of creatures that people want to come and see, like uh, whales and dolphins and, of course, eagles, or sea eagles. And, of course, the bald eagle being the symbol, of course, of the United States, symbolising courage and so on. Um, and, you know, and pushing forward into into new landscapes as well, that, the, the bald eagle. Did you know that Benjamin Franklin was very keen that the United States adopted the turkey as its uh, national I animal? did, but I found that out much later in my life. They did not tell you that in school. I must have been in my, I think I was in my mid-20s when I first heard that, and I thought, really? That thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, it is, it is native, I suppose. It actually ties in quite nicely. If we go back to the, the concept of pork not being... Um, uh, a popular meat in Scotland. When James the Sixth of Scotland became James the First of England uh, and the two kingdoms, um, there was a problem in the way at Christmas because in 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 Scotland we ate a goose and in England they tended to eat pork. Not not exclusively, but there was a. But then, handily enough, they discovered turkeys in America. So the king said, right, okay, then, if you can't make up your mind, according to this, may be apocryphal, but it's certainly something that's taught in schools. Um, if you can't make up your mind, you'll all eat turkeys. So that's why we eat turkeys for Christmas. 
Wow. It's yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I, I enjoy a good Turkey. I will say, um, I tend to be sleepier after a Turkey than I am after a piece of bacon, but yeah, yeah that's the trip to find in it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's a well, a well-known thing. Yes. I'm quite partial to a bit of Turkey myself. I would have to say it's, it's excellent. Then we have a great tradition in Scotland of, of using the leftovers to make a curry, which is a curry unknown in the subcontinent of India. It's a very Scottish curry with curry powder and apples and raisins and other unlikely things in it. It's very good, but it's, it's not a curry that any self-respecting uh, Indian would recognise in any shape or form, I assure Right, you. right. Well, neither very curry much, is a term that they don't recognise either. They don't use the term curry in India. <laughs> <laughs> I love that Scottish curry. I'll have to do that with my Thanksgiving leftovers this year. You, you mentioned something that I thought was you know, especially interesting going back to the unicorn, you use the word global. And mm-hmm. are there other parts of the world outside of Scotland, outside of England, you know, Wales, where the unicorn still holds so strongly, either in the imagination or it has such prominence in culture? Or does it seem that for whatever reason, your part of the world is the one that is maintaining you know, this um, celebration of the unicorn? Well, I think... In the modern era, era, it's definitely us. But you know, it was considered such a pure animal um, that the the belief in the purity of the unicorn and its efficacy as a medicine spread right through Europe, North Africa, and China. So there was this massive trade in this. The understanding of a unicorn it comes in all the best series. You know, the medieval collections of animals, the drawings and things. I actually have one on my wall here. It's a shame I can't turn the camera. In. Um, but uh, you know, the the it was a, a fairly global phenomenon now identifying it with the characteristics of a particular country and it was the it was a great symbol of the um independence referendum movement in 2014 and no doubt will be again next year uh, as we push forward for another independence referendum but it's you know so it, it was a global thing and now i suppose it's become more specific and more of a cuddly toy as well um Right, and, and so on. cupcakes, etc. Mm-hmm. Because I was even thinking of you know the Harry Potter series. I don't know if you, know, you read those books or oh yes, them, but, yes. right, the, the unicorn in them, and it just you know as a a child, it sort of reinforced this idea of what is you know, this magical place that is the United Kingdom and that sort of you know medieval mythology that still seems to be a part of its identity, but also you know, why the unicorn of all the creatures throughout history, all the mythical creatures that have been passed through different traditions, you know, why is it the unicorn that still manages to survive and survive in such a unique way, you know, in our literature and in our storytelling? Because it's a very spiritual thing. It's something to aspire to. It's extremely beautiful. It's very rare. And it's benevolent as well. It's a benevolent creature. So uh, all of these things, I think, make it uh, um, very attractive for anybody that's interested in magical creatures. I like that. That's very well said. Just sort of the kindness of it, I guess, as well. Something to aspire towards. When I was um, chatting with your colleague, uh, Gary Campbell, about the Loch Ness Monster, one thing we talked about was the role that these mythological creatures play in tourism. And sort of, you know, sustaining communities that maybe they don't have certain industries there anymore, but oh, they've got, you know, Nessie. So Nessie becomes sort of a boon to um, you know, travel tourism in that part of Scotland. Do you see any other mythological creatures you know, in Scotland that have that same impact? You know, if there are no unicorn sightings, do people come to Scotland to see 
other mythological creatures or try to experience the aura that those creatures might convey? Oh, yes, definitely, because the folklore is so full of stories. You know, in North Ronaldsea here in Orkney, we have a particular creature that lives there. Um, in the Minch, which is the channel between Scotland and the Hebrides, we have the Blue Men of the Minch, which are clearly based on cetaceans. Big blue men with long hair that stand out of the water. And so, but they're clearly, I've got, I was supervised a PhD looking at how that could be mapped onto cetacean migratory patterns the instances of the stories. I think people, you see, the great thing about Scotland, Julia, is that it's it's the ultimate tourist experience, right? It's not just a geographical location, it's a temporal location. You come to Scotland to go back in time. I don't know if you've seen a film called Brigadoon, <clears throat> by any chance, uh, with Gene Kelly and Van Johnson. Okay, well, in that case, folks, spoilers. Um, uh, these are two American tourists who come to Scotland and they find a village that only ap appears once every 100 years. And naturally, the, you know, Gene Kelly falls in love with Sid Charisse, who I'm terribly sorry, has the worst Scottish accent ever heard in a film. Uh, oh, dearie, dearie me, I'm sure she did her best. But the upshot of it is at the end of the film, Gene Kelly has the ultimate tourist um, experience and disappears into the mists of time with the village. So that's Scotland, you see. Well, people, and also people from America and Canada and Australia and places like that, you know, 55 million people worldwide claim Scots descent. There is that tie of the heart as well. And after all, you know, Neil Armstrong, first man on the moon, one of the first places that he went to after he came back from the moon landing was his father's village in the borders of Scotland, where his father had emigrated from. They invited him and he man a few words, Neil, as we know, but he did say, I have come home. And there's a wonderful picture of a little boy walking with him along the street and he's got a sign in front of him. Sorry, I'm going to choke up here. He's got a sign in front of him saying, my name is Neil Armstrong too. Because it's the Armstrong clan. You know, so we, we have that strange, you come to Scotland to experience a very different kind of tourism. You do not come to Scotland to lie on a beach, Julia, unless there's something wrong with you, right? You might slip a cardigan off at some point in the course of the year, right? And we do have beautiful days of weather, but, and we have fantastic beaches, but it's not a beach holiday destination. It's a cultural holiday destination. It's a place for real experiences, unusual experiences, um, finding out about the lived experience of communities, past, present and future, where we link in, you know, and, and coming back perhaps to check out your family roots. Definitely. We quite often get... Yeah, we quite often have people doing that. I mean, I remember one time, uh, we have a lot of cruise ships come into Orkney. It's the premier cruise ship destination in Britain. We have about over 200 cruise ships. And it was a very wet day and two uh, 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 parents um, and their, uh, two parents and their sons came in here to see if they could find out anything about the Norse or anything. And I was able to give them their family tree and tell them that they were descended from King Fergus of Scots because I knew what their surname was. I knew what it meant and I was able to print off a few things and the children both said, it was a Disney cruise they were on, they both said it was the best, absolute best day of the whole cruise because they'd found out something about themselves, you see, and about where they came from and about their tartan and all of that kind of thing. And it was no bother at all. I was delighted to do it. I'm always nice very happy. Very no, not at all, but I'm always very happy to, to tell people about Scotland and to tell them about their heritage. 
you know. And the great thing about Scotland is anybody can be Scots. There's a wonderful meme on Facebook that says, um, do you want to be Scots? Aye, you're in. Do you want to be Scots? No, I you do, right? <laughs> is, uh, because we are a very uh, inclusive people. And that's, I think that's maybe something uh, adds to the richness of the folklore. We've always welcomed people from other nations. Um, for example, we're the uh, only country, I believe, the only country in Europe that's never had uh, legislation against anybody like the Jews or anything like that. We've never had that. And so it's, you know, I think that, that the whole stories of everybody mixing together, because we were originally, the, as I was saying before, the four indigenous groups, you know, the Northumbrian English, the Norse, the Gaels and the Picts. So we're quite used to mixing together. So, and I rather like that. I like, I, I like to think of us as a country that embraces people. And I like to think that people can be Scots if they want to. It's not where we start, started, it's where we're going together that counts. That's beautiful. And, uh, you know, to your point about sort of senior history, I re remember, you know, we were walking around different parts of the country and, you know, you see the, the headstones, McInnes, you know, here and there. And I, there was one afternoon where we went hiking um, not too far from Oban. And so you could see the Isle of Mule. And I remember thinking, oh, my gosh, I think it was 13 something, you know, the McInnes clan chieftain and his sons were all assassinated right there on that island and by that decrepit castle. And if he could see, you know, these two McGuinness daughters right now with their iPhones, you know, up on the top of this <laughs> hill looking down, it would probably, I mean, that would be beyond anything like a unicorn for them to even imagine. <laughs> and the unicorn might seem normal to them at that point compared to where we are now. Yes, of course, you know what McGuinness means. I'm sure you do. You'll have to tell the audience, though. It's son of Angus. And Angus itself means first choice. That's ung, one, gush, choice. Like fair gush is favoured choice or preferred choice. So it's, it's a great name. My grandfather's name was Angus, actually. Oh, um, terrific. Mm -hmm. So uh, most of our surnames are Mac something, um, meaning son of, and that reflects the Gaelic tradition. You don't actually have surnames, you have descriptors. It's like in Iceland, you know, where nobody actually has a surname. So the phone book has everybody by first name. You only have a descriptor. Like for example, is that where Bjork comes from? <laughs> well, Bjork, yes, but for example, um, if if I was in Iceland, I wouldn't be Donna Hedel. I would be called after my father, whose name was Gordon, so I'd be Donna Gordonstutter. Oh, I see. Yep, the dotir, mm -hmm. right. D O T T I R. That's great. And uh, my son, whose name is Njal, handily enough, which is a Norse name, he would be Njal Stephenson after my husband. You see. Um, and so it's an interesting fact that um, in Iceland, if if you could, you, there could be a family of five, everybody with a different name at the end, right? So say I, D Donna Gordon's daughter, married Stephen Barrison, which indeed I did, and we have three children. One, of course, um, Bjork, uh, naturally, uh, who is Bjork Stephen's daughter. Uh, we have a son, Niall Stevenson, and we have Fredis, who decides she wants to be Donna's daughter. Right? So we all have the different surnames. Only one phone directory in, in Iceland and you have to know everybody. It's all done by first name. <clears throat> That's anyway, interesting. That's a little bit beside the point, but it explains a bit where our surnames come from. And of course, a lot of our surnames that people think of as being particularly Celtic are Norse. McKeever, son of Ivar. McSween, son of Swain. MacLeod, son of Leot, Earl of Orkney. And so on. 
Uh, the, the, lots of names like that, you know, the, the, and the red hair. I, I'm actually doing research at, at the moment into Scottish red hair and why I think it's an Norse gene, but I mean, alert here, this is just a theory. <laughs> um, although it was used by crime writer Val McDermott in one of her books. I was very excited about that. I emailed oh, her and asked her. And uh, she, I asked her if she had got that idea from my work, and she said, yes, of course. Wow. Well, that was very nice, but it's well, very much it's a work like in a progress. Jimmy Perez, the uh, the detective yeah. on Shetland, and I think what he said that it was related to a Spanish, I don't know, invasion or you know, has that be the Armada, the Spanish Armada? Right. We have it. You have it here that they were wrecked. The huge fleet that Philip of Spain sent against Elizabeth the First, she of the unicorn horns, um, and they were defeated in 1588, and they were swept up the north coast of Scotland. And we have we have people here called the Westry Dons. The Westry is an island of, of Orkney, and Dons, of course, meaning Spanish noblemen, because they're descended from uh, a wrecked armada ship there. So that's the same with Jimmy Perez. That's terrific. Donna, I have to ask, if you could meet any of these mythological creatures, you, you, we've referenced the dragon in Wales, you know, we've talked about the unicorn, you know, these various sea creatures that have popped up throughout Norse you know, mythology as well. If you could pick one of them to meet in person, who would you pick? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I think, actually, I would like to meet a unicorn. I would like to meet a unicorn and I would like to thank them for giving us such a powerful symbol of a powerful people. My co-host Anya was not able to join us this morning, but she sent me a couple short questions from her niece okay. who loves unicorns. And so if it's all right, I'll share a couple of those questions with you. Fire away. So she's curious to know how long was a unicorn's mane? Ah, that's a very good question. Uh, a unicorn's mane is as long as to the top, uh, to the top joint of the knee. That's pretty long. It's longer than I expected. Mm -hmm. That's because and, it's been flowing here, you see, it's a home. <laughs> and do all unicorns sparkle? Well, I would say more that they glowed, like the moonlight. Ooh. They capture the moonlight and they glow in the moonlight, rather than being per perhaps glittery. But they, they capture the light of the moon and they glow. So great. And this one, a little out of left field, but she was curious, do unicorns have rainbow poop or is it cotton candy poop? We're not entirely sure that they poop at all. That's why they're so magical. They're magical. They don't need to poop. <laughs> That's excellent, Donna. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, briefly, I, you know, it's something that you'd like to chat about. You know, I did notice from your social media that you also have a passion for dogs and dog rescue. Ani and I are big, you know, animal people. We do have, you know, audience members who are outside of the U.S., you know, based in the United Kingdom. And so if there's anything that you wanted to share about, you know, either some of the U.K.-based rescue groups, adoption groups that, that you're familiar with or, you know, anything along the lines of your, your love for dogs, we would be very interested. Uh, well, I have a small Pomeranian myself called Dino. Um, Ken will name the ladies' man, which is ridiculous. And uh, I'm very devoted to this little dog, and this little dog's very devoted to me. He was an excellent tiny co-worker during the pandemic when we were all working from home. 
and made sure I stopped at 11 o'clock for a cup of tea and a bun and so on and so forth. And obviously a chew for him. But uh, there's 3.4 million dogs have been abandoned in the United Kingdom um, since the pandemic. Oh, and my gosh. Yes, Is I'm it... afraid so. And I, I find it particularly moving when it's old dogs that have been dumped. I would have to say because a lifetime of utter devotion, because after all, we, a dog's just part of our world. They're, we're all of theirs. We're all of theirs. And to do that, to a faithful animal. Uh, so I find that for once, Twitter is useful for something. I quite like Twitter, but I don't always like the people that are on it. But if you can retweet and find uh, a dog a home and, and uh, further knowledge of these things, there's a petition on the moment, at, at the moment in the United Kingdom urging Parliament to stop people advertising dogs online. Um, and also to try and find homes for some of these dogs, and indeed cats as well, you know, and guinea pigs and rabbits and everything that people foolishly purchased when they were in lockdown without thinking about the consequences. These are not toys. These are little folk with feelings. And so I feel that there's lots of um, rescue groups who do tremendous work right up here in the, the homes uh, loving rescue homes for dogs up here in Orkney, right the way down to Oakwood Rescue in England, who all do excellent work, um, who try very hard not to have these dogs put down. Um, and I find that very, very, very moving, I would have to say. And, uh, and now we're seeing that breeders who made lots of money, of course, during lockdown, when you couldn't get a pup for love nor money, are just dumping them in bins and things. We've had a number of instances recently where pole litters of dog, little puppies have been found and I, I think it's terribly distressing for the people that find them as well you know you don't, you don't need to be and it's the ones that don't get found also break my heart a little right. bit um, uh, so I just think it's tremendous excellent work I support it vigorously I, I, you know I, I support the Scottish um, Society for Prevention of Cruelty to Animals of course but I also support uh, dog rescue I'm a, I also support water aid as well while I'm just mentioning that so that people all over the world can have a decent glass of water to drink thank you very much and I'm also a great advocate of free school meals for children as well because I think it's an absolute disgrace that a child goes hungry in this day and age anywhere in the world uh, and I'll just go off my soapbox now before I start ranting about rights for everybody. But um, yes, there's nothing purer than the love that a dog has for his human, his or her human. So we should give that back to them and treat them with dignity and respect. And if I can use my Twitter account or anything that I have at all, you know, any platform to encourage people to reflect on this and to support um, rescue organisations, you know, even a few pounds or a couple of dollars or the price of a cup of coffee at Starbucks or whatever. It's not that we have Starbucks in Orkney, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, that kind of thing. People need to get things in perspective. And what really matters in life is people and dogs <laughs> as well. But, you know, I second that. Li living beings, living beings is what really matters. Nothing else really matters. Living beings and loving one another and being as kind as you can be because you really don't know what kind of a day the other person's had. You know, you don't know what battles other people are, fight are fighting. So it's important just to, all we can really do in this world, I suppose, you know, none of us, you know, 50 years from now, nobody's going to give a hoot whether I was on this earth or not. But all I can do is try to make this world a tiny bit better in some tiny way for the fact that I passed through it in my brief sojourn. And that's all we can do. And if we all do that, things would be an awful lot better. <laughs> I have to say, Donna, you know, I, I learned a lot about the unicorn, but I, I think 
something that's going to stick with me from this conversation is how much you've embodied that fighting spirit, that sort of, you know, benevolent fighting spirit of Scotland. And I hope that's something that, you know, our listeners will, will take and, you know, find their own way of connecting to unicorns in that respect. Thank you. That's a very nice thing to say. I shall treasure it. Anya, I am so sad that you missed that recording for so many reasons. I mean, one of which I feel like you would just have made so much fun of me for being like such a Scotland fangirl and and all that. But also because I feel like you would have brought such a unique and fun commentary about why unicorns have flourished from like ancient history to today. You know who would have done really well on this podcast is my niece because she is obsessed with unicorns, like obsessed. I can bribe her with unicorn paraphernalia to get her to do what I want. Well, we did have some special questions that we did include from your niece. So that was that was a high point, but I agree. I feel like I should have just like disappeared and your niece should have come in and taken over. <laughs> next time, next time. <laughs> What did you what did you learn that was interesting about unicorns? Well, building off a little bit from our Loch Ness monster conversation, again, I really I'm so interested in the role that place plays in shaping stories and creatures and all of that. So just why is Scotland so unique for like birthing creatures like the unicorn and the Loch Ness monster and you know some of it I think it just goes back to all the rich cultures that have come together in Scotland, sort of Norse mythology, from like what we now consider a lot of Scandinavia and Iceland, and then to sort of the more um, uh, Gaelic cultures that came over from ancient Ireland. So you have a melting pot of all of these different groups and you know their tradition of storytelling, but also coming from these lands where there's just so much like beautiful natural geography and thick forests and mist. And like, how could you not imagine something like a unicorn, like prancing out of the Scottish mist and through the pines? I think we need to start, by the way, um, I think there's a country bias that you have of mystical, <laughs> mythical animals that we are featuring. And I think we need to start looking at other countries. I know you're obsessed with Scotland, um, but there's a bias going on here. And I don't want our users to think that, or our, our listeners to think that we only feature these types of animals from Scotland. You know what, Anya, fair point. Really considering that next time let's do Utah and we can talk about the jackalope. Sounds real romantic and exciting. Jackalopes are real. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm excited to hear your conversation and I can't wait to hear how she answered my niece's questions. She, she did an amazing job with them, brought a lot of humor to the questions. And I think something else that was fun to talk about is just why the unicorn has sort of remained. Like it went from being this ferocious, you know, scary animal, also sort of like a symbol of like male fertility and strength to today, you know, it's a fluffy thing that's on cupcakes and stuffed animals. And Well, have you seen the squatty potty? Excuse me? The Squatty Potty? No, Anya, I have not seen the Squatty Potty. <laughs> you know what a Squatty Potty is? Is it for toddlers? 
it is for pooping. <laughs> but they use a unicorn in their ads for the squatty potty. Highly recommend to watch the ads because not only have unicorns evolved from scary creatures, they now encourage us to poop properly. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um I can't say that I'm going to Google the squatty potty and I do have some follow-up offline so questions for you about it. this. Um, <laughs> and I was going to say, don't you remember the unicorn from Harry Potter? But I just realized you were not allowed to read Harry Potter as a child. So I guess like my obsession with mythical animals probably stems from the fact that like I got deep into these, like, I don't know, these like books based on the ancient lands of like Europe, particularly Great Britain. And you were, yeah, I wasn't. For those who, doing that. who have are maybe just listening for the first time, I grew up in a Christian bomb shelter, and I wasn't allowed to enjoy anything <laughs> that the other children did. So, like, I wasn't allowed to watch Smurfs. wasn't allowed to play with My Little Ponies. You know, magic bad. So, I'm just now uh, getting to reacquaint myself with my childhood. Were My Little Ponies actually banned? What What was wrong with My Little Pony? They did magic stuff. And my mom didn't want me <laughs> practicing sorcery around the house, I guess. <laughs> but I was allowed to play with my Barbies naked, so, you know. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> We're going to move on from that. <laughs> well, Anya, like, definitely give this episode a listen. It's, again, one of my favorites. I say that all of ours are favorites, but this one is definitely holds a soft spot in my heart. And I always think of unicorns around the holidays, like, why are we doing this episode right now? But there's just something about those, you know, those ancient uh, tapestries that I've always associated with Christmas time and visiting the cloisters around the holidays. The cloisters is a medieval museum in New York City. And so uh, I was very happy to include Donna in this conversation. I'm excited to listen. Nay! Nee.